I had a lot of preconceptions about propaganda films before Friendly Fire. I thought they'd be thinly veiled war bonds commercials with wooden, perfect characters bombing Tokyo with enough hot apple pies to force their surrender to our perfectly pomaded generals. God bless America, or whatever. Air Force is positioned to be exactly that, but right away you're introduced to a B-17 bomber crew chock full of shadowy pasts, imperfections, and regrets. It's a film that says your heroes aren't perfect almost as much as you don't have to be either. And that's inspiring in some way. But the film is disturbing in some others. I guess I just sort of assumed that the major thrust of a U.S. propaganda film of this era would be exclusively about its one-sidedness and not resorting to just making shit up. But this film does, and what it and others made up had atrocious consequences for Asian Americans at the time. Yes, the attack on Pearl Harbor was bad, infamously so, sufficiently tragic to invite the response it got even. This film is based on real events and real people, and their real and true stories are sufficient to inspire noble enlistment. Did we really need to make up lies about Japanese Americans participating in the attack? No, clearly. But does it ruin the film? It might for some people. But it also makes you think about how people formulate their opinions based on the media and entertainment they consume, and the creeping effect of a lie believed by enough people affecting... Holy shit, I think I'm writing a film paper right now. And it's with that kind of consideration that I suggest going into watching an artifact like this. There's maybe never been a friendly fire film more a product of its time than this movie, and I'm fully aware of what saying that means. It's like letting an aging relative say something fucked up at Thanksgiving and then just shrugging your shoulders saying, what are you going to do? He's from a different time. I'm not the type to forgive that, and I'm not the type to forgive this, but as a time capsule, I think there's something to be learned from the way people used to think and act upon things, so that maybe, against every cynical expectation in my body, we can learn from our mistakes and do better. Can you keep a secret? That's good. On today's Friendly Fire, as we take off for Air Force. Welcome to Friendly Fire, the war movie podcast that is never not having trouble with putting the landing gear down. I'm Ben Harrison. I'm Adam Pranica. And I'm over here cranking them down. <laughs> I'm John Roderick. Is that what you're cranking? Cranking. <laughs> Weren't you hoping for that scene? Oh, yeah. How are you going to be in a B-17 without somebody trying to get the landing gear down? They didn't show the wheel or anything. <laughs> Before we get too far into this, I should I should note that John is uh, is is at my house this time. Yeah, exciting. This, this is one of the rare friendly fire records where I am the one hosting. It's yeah. usually one or the the other of you guys. I'm at, I'm in Los Angeles yeah. Echo Park, even. Yeah, it's probably more like Reverb Park because we're recording in my uh, in my dining room, which doesn't have a lot of soft surfaces. We'll let Rob's deal with that. <laughs> yeah, sorry, Rob's. 
but uh, boy, this is a very racist movie. <laughs> it's it's uh, it's beyond that. I mean, it, it, this is a propaganda movie, yeah. right? It, it's one of the first World War II movies that came out during the war. It was meant to come out like on the one year anniversary of the Pearl Harbor attack, and they uh, they didn't get it finished uh, until two months later, but. Unfortunately, it's also full of lies. Yeah. I mean, it's a propaganda movie that is like deeply wrong at a, 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 in the way it characterizes what happened at Pearl Harbor. The, the conceit of these guys take off doing a, you know, moving an airplane during peacetime and land in wartime. Which is a true story. Is, is a great way to get into a story. Yeah. But yeah, like the, I read that the, the story that they keep telling about the vegetable trucks from Honolulu that clipped all the tails off of the wings of airplanes is just a total fabrication. Yeah, it is. The the uh, the, the whole fifth column premise, which the movie doesn't doesn't talk about. Right. But this was the this was maybe the 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 whole justification for the internment of Japanese during the war. Yeah. Was this was this false idea that that. Uh, the Japanese population of Hawaii aided and abetted the the invaders. So you're saying that the uh, internment was not justified, not <laughs> not justified. And and what's crazy about this movie is that it gives a window on the mentality, the mindset of white America in the early part of the war, right? Where almost everyone conceded that the that Japanese civilians, even ones who had been in Hawaii for generations or on the West Coast for generations, were were just it, it was too great a risk. It like like this movie posits a version of Pearl Harbor where a B-17 made an emergency landing in a field and some Japanese farm workers just started opening fire on them. Like the war is on. We're doing it. I know it's crazy. It's uh, there's snipers in the woods. <laughs> Like so, the historical record right has one instance where a uh, a Japanese uh, fighter pilot crash landed on a, on the westernmost and most remote island of the Hawaiian chain, and uh, it was it's a private- unfortunately the name of that island has been lost to history. <laughs> what is it? What is it? Did, I, did you I, ever, I, yeah. I don't I even remember it. But it's uh, it was a privately owned island, and it had. A small population of native Hawaiians and a few Japanese farm workers who were, uh, you know. Japanese-American? Japanese-American. Well, no. Two, I think two of them were immigrants and two of them were American-born. Okay. But no one on the, there was no communication, right? So the people on the island didn't realize that Pearl Harbor had happened. All of a sudden, a Japanese pilot crash landed. Yeah. Oh, so they're just like, oh, man. They're like, bummer. What happened? But they put it together pretty fast. Yeah. Um, but somehow he got the two, um, the two Japanese who had uh, who had immigrated. He got them to to help him, and they overpowered one of his captors. And there was like a maybe a two day period before. I want to see that movie. I know it's really it's a kind of a crazy event, and I think there was just a lot of confusion. But the but the the native Hawaiians on the island recognized that they needed to capture this guy, keep his papers. Wow. Uh, but f- briefly, you know, they staged in an insurrection. But that was the only instance of anyone in Hawaii of Japanese descent or anyone, I think, in the Americas that actually, like, performed a, a collaboration. Right. But that's well, not what this movie says. No, yeah. <laughs> this, you don't even really see Japanese characters until the very end. There's a bunch of Japanese soldiers rushing whatever air airstrip that was in the 
end of the movie. Was that that wasn't Darwin? That was uh, Clark. Yeah, airstrip or something like you that. You see, you see some Japanese Navy people get it. You know, kind of um, manning the anti-aircraft. Right, guns. right, right. And um, <laughs> but yeah, it's not one of the films we've watched where we get a real inside look in what it was like to be. On the other side. They're going out of their way to dehumanize, not going out of their way to humanize. And the other aspect of it, of course, is the propaganda-ness of just the, I mean, the American soldiers are so glisteny, handsome, and... Yeah. There's the one guy that's a bit of a heel at the beginning. I've had enough of the army. I'm getting out next month. And he becomes the most patriotic. Right. He's He, like, goes from, I'm getting out in a week, to... Everybody loves him and he saves the dog and <laughs> he does like the most uh, screenplay stuff to get back in our good graces. What's that guy's name? Wenaki. Wenaki. Yeah. But he doesn't actually die in a hail of gunfire to protect his friends, which is what I thought was going to happen. It did sort of seem like that was it was building to that. They don't make it seem like this is undangerous or fun, you know? No, it's gnarly. Yeah, it's pretty badass given how much of a uh, a recruiting pitch it also feels like well yeah the recruitment is about vengeance right like it's it's not the sort of propaganda that's like uh you will become a hero to your friends and family if you enlist it's a don't you hate the damn japs don't you want to get in on this curb stomp it's really that kind of vibe so much of it every single person is motivated by personal loss and just like get back it's a it's a total get back the thing i kept wondering about was like i don't think that the extra layer of racism adds anything to the movie as a movie make their case seem more compelling it it really feels like almost like they had a script and then they went back and were like okay we got to punch this up add a little bit more racism here a dab of xenophobia there like was that seen by the studio or the department of war or whatever as like if we make them more rapidly anti-Japanese through movies like this, they will be more likely to buy war bonds or something like that? I think it wasn't that they felt like the audience needed it as much as the audience wanted it. I mean, this is the era of, of Dr. Seuss making super like gnarly anti-Japanese comics. Right. Everybody just just wanted it. And it wasn't it wasn't just that we were trying to enlist young guys because I'm sure people came out of this movie theater and were like, that's the final straw, right? I'm going to go, I'm going to join up to get vengeance for that old master sergeant's dead son. (laughs) But also, you know, we're trying to justify all kinds of stuff. We're trying, I mean, a lot of, a lot of people on the West coast, they were watching their neighbors get loaded onto buses. Right. And if you have, if you have even the smallest amount of misgivings about that, this is the kind of thing that makes you go, if if not like, God bless America, at least you go, you know what, maybe I see their point. Yeah. I mean, there was a, the newspaper in Bremerton, Washington, <laughs> uh, surprisingly was one of the few that ran several uh, editorials that were saying, hey, we can't do this. Like, our, these are our neighbors and friends. And the kind of vitriol that they received for writing that kind of editorial just from people in their community who were like, I mean, it's basically what you would see today. Right. Um, the op-ed section of newspapers have always been trolling the, the readership. <laughs> but I feel like in 1942, even long before the war started, anti-Asian sentiment was just kind of 
yeah. one that was percolating. Um, I was reading about the cinematographer of this film. His, uh, he's credited as James Wong Hao, uh, but I guess his Chinese name is Wong Tung Jim. And he was a Chinese American cinematographer who like started his career toward the end of the 20s and was like one of the hot dog cinematographers in the 30s and 40s. He pioneered all these film techniques like using dollies. He pioneered low key lighting. So like a lot of the shots in the film, you'll see that the actor's face isn't the most brightly lit thing on them. He's he's putting the hard, harder light on the side to give them rim light and and their faces are slightly more in shadow and that's a tech like a technique that he pioneered like a decade earlier but he he became an american citizen in 1943 like right on the heels of the repeal of the chinese exclusion act wow and like the this movie came out that same year so like it is so interesting to think that the guy like running the camera department for this film was chinese american and this is like I mean, I, I, you know, and China and Japan obviously had like super intense rivalry during the war. And I think part of wasn't part of the reason for repealing the Chinese Exclusion Act just to be a further fuck you to the Japanese and like a support for Chiang Kai-shek. And we've seen other films where they're, they're like going out of their way to make the Chinese seem like agreeable allies. Yeah, valiant ones, right? Yeah. I mean, they were... I mean, part of the justification for for the American like political attitude toward the Japanese before Pearl Harbor was the their you know the rape of Nanking and their right. their behavior in Manchuria. So it's it is it's a funny flipperoo considering for most of the twenties and thirties the Chinese were still the were still considered in the Americas like to be the to be the yellow peril. Yeah, like he wasn't allowed. He he was with a woman for a long time and wasn't allowed to marry her to like five years after this because of anti-miscegenation laws. Like it's amazing the amount of racism that was just part of the atmosphere. Back well, then. you have to try and get inside his head too. Yeah. Like he's making this movie and he's like, yeah, Japanese <laughs> collaborators. I mean, you know, yeah, but of course, right. He's an American. So, yeah. And that was the case that the, that the Nisei were making too. I expected from that story, Ben, for his career to sort of shrivel up after this, but he went on to run camera for another, looks like, 20 films. So Yeah, and won a couple of Academy Awards, was nominated for 10 for yeah. Best Cinematography. Like, he was a big deal. I want to see the movie about him. Yeah. I know. This was a really dark movie, and I mean, some of it was that there was some really, some model work that... Some of it was amazing and yeah. some of it was really not amazing. And they tried to you camouflage can, it by having a lot of scenes in the dark. Like even when you can see the wires, sometimes it's amazing. But yeah, like this is a movie that is heavily reliant on some pretty extravagant special effects for the time. And uh, <laughs> occasionally that does not serve it very well. Morning, sir. How are we doing? I felt like the profile of the B-17 model that they used was an earlier version of the B-17 compared to the actual B-17s that we also see in the movie. Yeah, I get that feeling too. I think there was, a, there was something a little bit off about the models throughout. But they just didn't, they didn't look like the planes. 
Yeah, but it's so weird, like the way a model effect works and the way you're tricked into believing what you're seeing because, like, you're right. They are really, it's really a coin flip about whether or not you're going to get a Godzilla version of a B-17 landing <laughs> or or a version that looks like it has some verisimilitude. But I, it didn't make me dislike the, the versions that were bad, though. There was something uh, really enjoyable about even the ones where you see the wires. They had a lot of depth of field in those scenes. So there would there'd be bur things burning in the foreground. Right. And they, yeah, right. They were super charming. And a fair amount of mix between the model shots and and the practical shots. Like they they were using some real planes here. I mean, the scenes at the beginning when we have 9 B17s at our disposal. Yeah. And they're and we have all this the, all these shots of them flying together and taking off. I mean, that just the sound of those engines, so exciting. Not a great commercial for the B-17 radial <laughs> engine, I would say. It sounded really bad, I thought, to me. Like, I, you love, you both love and, and hate that sound, I think, because it just sounds like those engines are out of oil. It sounds like a coffee can full of nickels falling down the stairs. <laughs> Every time they, they land, they've got to get the cowl off the engines. Yeah. And when they show them starting up, it just it's like, oh, like they must have like forgot to put a couple of the bolts in because that looks real rattly. Yeah. <laughs> you know, my old house, my farm was right up the hill from Boeing Field. And the sort of legends in my neighborhood were that when they would have a new, you know, because they'd fill that field up with B-17s during the war. And wow. then they would all start their motors at once and all take off kind of in, in these giant formations. And the legend was that the windows would rattle so hard in my neighborhood that they would break from <laughs> the sound of 50 B-17s all nickels in coffee cans. Do you just send an invoice to the Boeing Corporation <laughs> like once a week? <laughs> it's just part of the, the war effort. <laughs> <laughs> I noticed a, a moment of pedantry about the, the B-17 and specifically piloting it. This is one of those moments of pedantry that, uh, that is, is worded in a way that makes me think a very old person wrote it. <laughs> the idea that a single-engine fighter P-40 pilot could immediately climb into the seat of a four-engine B-17 bomber and fly it in combat beggars the imagination. <laughs> <laughs> I wondered about that. <laughs> I think if there was ever an era of a single-engine pilot being able to do that, it's this one, though. Multi-engine rating is is certainly a different thing, but yeah. right, they all they all trained on the same like A6 Texans, right? The rivalry felt very related to the drone versus regular plane pilot rivalry that John you were talking about many episodes ago. Like there really is that vibe that a fighter pilot thinks. A B-17 as a flying boxcar. That was neat. Yeah. I, it, I loved that they referred to him and he referred to himself as a pursuit pilot. Yeah. yeah. The whole idea of him being a fighter or the, of those being fighter planes, that wasn't part of the nomenclature yet. They yeah. were pursuit planes. He, uh, his character really reminded me of uh, the the lead guy in Crash Dive who's like, who's all about hot dogging in, in uh, yeah. PT boats, but gets stuck in a, <laughs> in a submarine. He reminded me of Jack, that, uh, the guy that owns Jack's Barbecue in Seattle. <laughs> oh, yeah? <laughs> yeah, I was going to say that same thing. <laughs> I felt like the handsomeness of those guys at the beginning of the movie was going to make me 
just dislike the movie throughout. But there were some pretty good performances. They're pretty good acting for guys that were so gosh darn squeaky clean. The uh, the old Sarge, the the crew chief, maybe the heart of the movie, and he really he gets really emotional in a few scenes. Like when the the scene when he finds out about his son dying is particularly tough, but he's got he's got a bunch of moments like that, and he's like a, an old guy, but he's really getting vulnerable for the camera in a way that I don't expect old men in 1943 to be able to do. On the other hand, like they're they're Captain and pilot dies in this movie, and it's like, wow, that's that's sure a shame. Anyways, let's get somebody else in that seat and take off and stick it to the Japanese. Yeah, they all take their hats off and give him like a moment of silence, and then they're like, all right, load them up. <laughs> like, which is it? <laughs> the enlisted personnel officer uh, relationship divide was played in this movie in a uh, a really delicate way, in, in, not not delicate like they were tiptoeing around it, but the opposite. It was just understood that the officers were young yeah. and clearly aristocratic relative to the more um, Brooklyn-y enlisted people. But it, that right. but that relationship was never played for for any kind of drama or frisson. It was like except in the relationship between that one gunner. And the officers, and then I guess there was a lot of there were a lot of people on this airplane that wished they had passed flight school, right? And that was a kind of a crazy message. Yeah, like to don't be don't expect to be a like a hot dog fighter pilot. Like like you're going to end up a navigator, right? But but you're still a but hero. still honorable work and right. Um, they do sort of feel like they're setting that up at the beginning, like when the when the crew chief was talking about like imagine me having to salute my own son. Yeah. And then you thought that was going to be a plot point. Right. Uh, but but in fact, the kind of that respectful, like the orders are going to come from the captain. He's 25. Right. The sergeant is 45, but he never once questions the officer's authority. Right. But it doesn't feel awkward. There is a lot of intra respect in the way you're describing, but there is not very much inter respect among the parts of the armed forces. Like, for example, Every Marine we see is sort of an Ernest Borgnine type character. Your Zima, hula hoops, and Pac-Man video games. (laughs) (laughs) That's not a good look, right? Thick-necked. Yeah. Yeah. Dog walker duty, that guy gets. Cool. Hey, you're from Brooklyn, too. (laughs) Yeah, these are not... uh, These are not the tough hombres that we've come to expect from from war films after this, I think. You're the guy from Brooklyn in your war movie, and I'm the guy from Brooklyn in my war movie. (laughs) Given the representation of guys from Brooklyn in war movies, I wonder what percentage of the U.S. armed forces in 1942 was made up of guys from Brooklyn. It seems like it had to have been 25%. Yeah, it had to be a thing. And I guess maybe the the reason we see them so often in movies is that for the rest of uh, American servicemen, they were the most exotic thing they'd ever seen. Right. And so you had to be introduced to them in movies because, you know, if you were some corn-fed kid yeah. and showed up in boot camp and, and there was- this fast-talking yeah. card player. Hey, what's the matter with you? Like, <laughs> uh, like that was, that they might as well have been from Asia. You know what? I'm- uh... I'm speaking out of turn because the the New York guy in this is 
is scornful of Brooklyn because he's a Manhattan guy. He doesn't consider Brooklyn to even be New York. Right. He's like, oh, once you cross the river, you're not in New York. I knew a guy that drove a hack across that bridge and I never heard from him again. <laughs> Unbelievable. <laughs> I mean, New York has always been like the most populous city in the U.S. for a long time. So it must be that it just contributed a disproportionate cultural yeah, influence. Right. Always, it was always a foreign country. You know, kind of the way the South often is re- is regarded in movies like this. Right. When Naki plays this, this role that I really think, at first you wonder what he's doing in a propaganda movie, mm-hmm. but he ends up, I think, he's there because he's meant to stand in for every single person that isn't 100% behind the war. Right. Right. So this is your friend that has doubts. This is your friend that's read too many books. This is your friend that's the fuck up too, because he's made mistakes and he doesn't think uh, he's cut out for it. But there is a place for you, even if you're a fuck up in this war. Right. He really finds Jesus somewhere along the line. And he doesn't, he never gets that scene where he's got an American flag waving behind him. He doesn't find the USA as much as he finds that he loves being behind a machine gun and he's ready to kill some some of the enemy. When they right. cut the tail cone off of the back of that plane and shove him in with a machine gun, <laughs> I think it is very telling that they don't cut back to him in flight at all because that is an impossible situation for him. Pretty gnarly, right? Wow. Yeah. Because the air is coming in through the cheek guns and you know there's like 150 miles an hour of breeze shooting past and wanting him to eject out of the back of the plane. It's just the fact that there's that mounted gun in between him and the hull that's holding him in. Well, right? he's got to have his feet hooked into a spar somehow. You hope so. <laughs> but I mean, imagine the thrill of of you basically your face hanging out the back of a B-17 and watching fighter planes line up on you thinking they're... Yeah. Thinking they've got the advantage and you've got a 50 caliber and you're just, you know, just throwing bullets into them. Am I misremembering that we've seen B-17s with tail guns? But not at first. Yeah. Later models had them. Wow. Yeah. And this was an innovation that came out of wartime. So they like somebody had come up with the idea of unscrewing the the cone on the on the back of it. I mean, they took a a sawzall to it. I don't think they unscrewed it. There was like a there was like a ring like you see on a on a spacesuit. Where the helmet attaches? No, I think that the, the Flying Fortress evolved over the course of the war. And by evolved, I mean they just put more machine guns in it pointing in more directions. Later models also had dog carriers too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they pressurized the cargo hold so that you could transport live animals. Yeah. Welcome back to Fireside Chat on KMAX. With me in studio to take your calls is the dopest duo on the West Coast, Oliver Wong and Morgan Rhodes. Go ahead, caller. Hey, uh, I'm looking for a music podcast that's insightful and thoughtful, but like also helps me discover artists and albums that I've never heard of. Yeah, man, sounds like you need to listen to Heat Rocks. Every week, myself and I'm Morgan Rhodes, and my co-host here, Oliver Wong, talk to influential guests about a canonical album that has changed their lives. Guests like Moby, Open Mike Eagle, talk about albums by Prince, Joni Mitchell, and so much more. Yo, what's that show called again? Heat Rocks, deep dives into hot records. Every Thursday on Maximum Fun. 
Hi, I'm Renee Colbert. I'm Alexis Preston. And we're the hosts of the smash hit podcast, Can I Pet Your Dog? Now, Alexis. Yes. We got big news. Uh-oh. Since last we did a promo, our dogs have become famous. World famous. World, like, stars on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Second big news. Mm-hmm. The reviews are in. Mm-hmm. Take yourself to Apple Podcasts. You know what you're going to hear? We're happy. It's true. We're a delight. A great distraction from the world. I like that part a lot. So if that's what you guys are looking for, Mm -hmm. you got to check out our show. But what else can they expect? We've got dog tech, dog news, celebrities with their dogs, all dog things. All the dog things. So if that interests you, well, get yourself on over to Maximum Fun every Tuesday. There is so much nostalgia for this type of plane. I feel like so many movies are about specifically the B-17. Like, why no love for the other weird planes? Where are the Catalina movies? I think this was this was a plane that like took that could take so much damage and stay in the air. Yeah. That it it became a, it was a, like an emblem of a kind of indomitability. I think the B-24, didn't we look into this, Adam? The B-24 actually could carry more ordnance and, I don't know, in some ways was maybe a a better bomber. Right. I'm looking up the number of airplanes and types produced during World War II because I wonder about the relative build rate of the B-17 versus others. Do you have a? Well, we've got we've got Ben's uh, encyclopedia. Oh yeah, should I run and grab that? <laughs> I don't know if it's I don't know if it has information like that though. Um, yeah, I'll, I mean, I'll ride for the PBY all day, but sure. I think that like one of one of the many like forms of racism in the movie is that like it depicts the Americans as this like incredibly resourceful group where like even if their plane is shot 100 times they can like find logs to prop up the wing and and service the engine on some spit of land in the middle of pacific that you know that doesn't have any tools or spare parts and and then you know the japanese are always discussed as like oh yeah like it's never a fair fight with them it's always a dirty trick it's always you know they always out outnumber us 10 to 1 but if it, you know if you could get them into you know even odds, like we'd kick their ass every time. Well, and that's, I think, also uh, uh, the propaganda effect of it being that we were caught with our pants down at the start of the war. Right. And we... So we need to rationalize that in a way that doesn't make us look too bad. It's crucial that you understand that it's treachery and not a mistake on the part of the United States. But also, all the people that are going to see this movie in the theaters that aren't enlisting are Rosie the Riveters. Right. And so it's also a message to them that we'll beat the Japanese if we have the material that you need to go make right now. Like go get a job at Ford and start making start making us some start airplanes. Start making some cowls. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> These engines are very rattly. <laughs> that scarcity of resources in the Pacific especially is something that we've seen in so many movies like how the like a big plot point before the final battle is them just like scavenging all the spare parts they need from planes that have been blown up in a ple- previous Japanese bom- bombing run, and like they barely get a functional plane out of it, but they do. That was the the one moment in the movie that I kind of questioned because all of the events here are happening within weeks of Pearl Harbor. Yeah, and yet at a certain point they they see that. Um, I mean, it's within days, right? right? Like they're 
it's still December when they see the Japanese fleet steaming toward Darwin. And that's the thing that that was confusing to me or or that I had that I had some questions about because we see we find this armada yeah. and somehow they marshal an air force yeah. from various, you know, navy bases and so forth and I was like, did they really at that point in the war have were they able to mount any kind of resistance to to the Japanese in that I mean this is like the fall of the Philippines yeah where I think crucially there was never a Japanese fleet steaming toward Australia in December of 1941 so <laughs> I think I think that's the main reason that that's bullshit <laughs> I did really like that no safe harbor vibe to the film after that first what is it like the B-17s make it to Hickam in 30 minutes in film time right and then the yeah. rest of the runtime is sort of this, like, I wish I had a better comparison, but it feels very Walking Dead-like. Like, you've got your one plane, and you're going from island to island, and every island you land in is bombed out and fucked. And yeah. that that doom of going from place to place and finding you're never safe in any of them, and all you want to do is rest, but you can't. you got to go back up into the air. It's like... I think in the film it makes the case that there's three dates, three days and three nights of continuous flying for this flight crew. Yeah, um, I wondered if the marketing of this film situated it in the moment that it takes place because for the like you're talking about like the first thirty minutes being leading up to Pearl Harbor, but for the first twenty minutes we don't even know when it's taking place. Like yeah. they don't say whether the war's on or not, and then. There's like a close-up of a guy filling out his flight log and he writes December 6th at the top of, of the piece of paper. Right. And that's the first time we know like what these guys are in for. I know you often watch the trailers for these movies before we sit down to review them, Adam. Did you find one for this? I, I don't know if they even did, did them back then. Yeah, I mean, it was baked in. You knew what you were you knew what story you were watching before you bought a ticket. For me, it was like a total surprise. It was, uh, I was like, oh shit. <laughs> I, I assumed that the war was already happening. <laughs> yeah, pretty good. Pretty, pretty good little reveal. Yeah. I should say about the raid on Darwin, it happened in February of 42. And it was, it was a massive uh, battle between a Japanese armada and the, the kind of buildup of the allies that they managed by that point in time. And so my, so in watching the film, I did feel like toward the end, we did have maybe not a montage, but a sense that they had gotten to somewhere and we watched a little bit of time pass. So it's possible that there was a foreshortening of the timeline that happened right before uh, right before that armada battle, but but that isn't really made super clear in the movie. I mean, I, I you do get a sense of like, oh, did a guy grow a mustache <laughs> in the, in the space of time here? Tex definitely got a little scruffy by the end of the film, but yeah. So so I feel like eh, it's it, possible it, that yeah, it looked like two days of stubble, not like uh, not like he'd been in there with with them for a month, and also like, how realistic is it that a marine could just be like, hey, I'm coming with you guys. <laughs> I don't know. It was a, it was definitely a free for all. I'm really not sure how much. But I like the desperate feeling of that. Like you make accommodations during wartime that you would never during peace. I could get with that. But is that like like they are occasionally like torn about what to do because of the regs. Like the dog is a whole issue because it's against regulations. 
but it's also like we're going to do our brothers in the Marine Corps a solid on right. this one. And also like the Marines we meet when they find out this dog was previously owned by other Marines will not ask any further questions. They right. will just take care of it. Oh, right on. <laughs> but you know, that whole scene on Wake Island where the commander was wounded yeah. and, and pretty much everybody agreed that protocol uh, insisted that they fly this guy out. And the guy's like, I'm not leaving Wake. Right. And, and it also felt very patriotic, especially feeling like that was a last stand scenario. Yeah. Is, was Wake Island eventually captured by the Japanese? Yeah. In fact, it happened in the timeline of this movie, like uh, basically around Christmas. Wow. Um, Wake, there, was a, there was a whole battle of Wake Island, and they ended up surrendering to the, surrendering to the Japanese. Um, so, you know, this was during a period where we did not have any victories. Wow. And um, that was what made the, you know, the Doolittle raid such an effective tool for us because we watched – you know, we watched Islands Fall, the Philippines. I mean, that was that was a real bummer. We're roosting right over them. Just make a turn and follow us. Uh, that final battle scene where they're bombing the the Japanese invasion fleet, it feels like the film is really relishing in the pain that's being inflicted on the Japanese. Like it goes in close on guys, you know, in the cockpit of their zero catching a bullet and then slumping in their chair or up in the conning tower on their destroyer. Uh, you know, being immolated. It's another movie where a lot of dudes get burned. It's It feels like it's punishing them. And like, I was imagining a 1943 crowd, like, you know, standing up and cheering in the theater, kind of being what they were going for. The way that sequence is cut together, it is shot, reverse shot, basically, of angry American at the delivering end of a machine gun cut yeah. to those planes blowing up like you really do get a sense of of the rage of it all it's it's revenge yeah and those are some of the special effects that work the best i mean we see gunners in the belly guns of a b-17 and planes coming at them from the side and it doesn't look like reverse projection it looks like it looks like you're in the battle they're blowing up a couple models out there too with the way the wings fold up and and the way the flames come out i really like the the mix of that some of those models were big. Yeah. Some of those ship models you could tell were, uh, you know, ten feet long. Yeah. Yeah, I kind of thought that the uh, that the B seventeen that they show in all the landing and takeoff sequences, it's clearly controlled by you know six or seven pieces of filament wire, but it's a man wearing a rubber B seventeen suit. <laughs> 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 uh, that is probably really big, just given what the fires in, in the foreground look like and, and all the, you know, shrubbery and stuff. It seemed like it seemed like they really spared no expense on the on the miniature work in this movie. Because it's Howard Hawks who was a big deal, am I right? I mean, Howard Hawks is one of the one of the golden age directors. Yeah, I mean, second only to Hudson Hawk. Yeah. And Howard Hughes. Right. Love child? I think you're thinking of Hudson <laughs> Hogg. Just got out of jail yesterday and I'm robbing an auction house. He did some big flicks. Indeed. F-L-I-X flicks. Yeah. Scarface 1932. His Girl Friday. This guy was a big deal. He was a big deal. Uh, yeah, I, I read that the this production was pretty chaotic and he nearly got fired uh, from the set just because of... I mean, I, I kind of had the sense that it was because they were rushing to get it done and and out. But uh, you know that scene in Barton Fink where all of a sudden the studio head is in a 
colonel's uniform and they're like did you join up and he's like well i haven't done it yet but i had the uniform made up by costume <laughs> uh fun <laughs> i wanted to talk also a little bit about uh there's kind of one key female character in the movie and we meet her a long time after the idea of her has come up which is that like i guess it's like the navigator is her brother, but the co-pilot is her paramour. And there's a lot of good natured ribbing. Yeah, good natured ribbing, but it's not like the weird, like, this guy's trying to fuck my sister. Gross. Like, it's like, it's like, yeah, you'll make an honest woman of our tip tip, <laughs> you know? Well, and, and the, and Tex, the fighter pilot is at first suspected of, of having love triangled him. Yeah. There's, or something. A, there's a lot of uh, animosity toward him because he was with her the night of, of Pearl Harbor. Right. I mean, the film in that moment suggests that he's a coward for not keeping her safe. Right. And then it's revealed he was a hero. Yeah. yeah. He was rushing into the fray to to go shoot down some some zeros. He was Affleck and Hartnett all in one. <laughs> he was. He was. The yeah. character that that those two guys were based on. I think we see her just that one moment in the bed, right? She's when she's in the hospital. Right. right. She she got she got machine gunned and for some reason in a chaotic Pearl Harbor Hospital. She has her own private room. Yeah, that's, that's got to be nice, and it's big too. Yeah, she's. I mean, she's part of that upper crust, right? <laughs> she's the sister of an officer. That stuck out to me also, just in that, like, I feel like the trope in so many movies, especially old movies, is that if you're like sweet on a guy's sister, he's going to be real sore, right. and that is not. <laughs> that, that was is, perfect terminology. <laughs> <laughs> This is not the vibe in this movie. It's uh, it's like, uh, like that's gonna be great. You, yeah, right. You two are gonna be happy together. I mean, there's a there's a lot of that sweetness in the movie, and most of the sweetness is happening between officers who are all shown to be to have a lot of camaraderie with each other. Yeah, and really, really given a kind of class, like the the gloss of college boys the gloss of of being upper class right um and the and the enlisted guys are all portrayed as working class right and that is that that divide is really accepted by everybody and kind of beloved right it's like it's not even encoded it's like it's very out there for everyone to see right like you use guys are young and handsome and went to college like tell yeah. us what to do i drive a hack in new york city <laughs> i'm a plain old guy you know <laughs> We got you. We got you, Chief. Nobody's going, hey, uh, check your privilege while you're at it. No, yeah, why no, don't you? No, there's none of that. There's none of that. <laughs> I'm a big fat Marine. <laughs> <laughs> there's even a Rickles in this movie. Yeah. Uh, who who looks like a Rickles. It's just like he's a pre-Rickles Rickles. Yeah, a proto-Rickles. <laughs> but he's a recognizable character actor. Yeah. Right? We've seen him before and we see him again. Yeah, he's the guy that wears the hat. Yeah, it's it's Weinberg, the Brooklyn guy. No, no it's it George is. Tobias. George Tobias is Weinberg. And Weinberg is he's George Weinberg. Tobias. My name's Weinberg, second engineer. Chester's my name. Glad to know you. So George Tobias as Weinberg, he's a character actor that you see, I think, a lot in movies like this. And I, he, I think he was on Bewitched. <laughs> like, he's a familiar face to any... Uh, any boomer listening or any generation X that was force fed boomer culture uh, growing up. 
But I, I thoughts mean, and I, prayers. As as soon as he arrived on the scene, I was like, the Rickles. <laughs> you know, he's not. He doesn't quite slip on banana peels, but he does have all the laughs. Yeah. If you're scared to be in a war, though, I think he serves a really good purpose in a propaganda film because he's not the guy who's busting other people's chops on the flight crew he's he's friendly and jocular and he's sweet in a way that you don't expect a warrior to be right and it's that god takes care of fools kind yeah. of thing where like the you know a bullet comes through the window and he's like wow would you look at that and then he like points at it and another bullet comes right through where right. he's pointing all yeah. the laughs the pilot is so often our hero in a movie like this and to have the pilot be swapped out mid movie i thought was such a such an interesting story choice like the movie does not make the case that you're safe if you're the hero of the film. Mm -hmm. The movie makes the case that you're safe if you're part of the team. Like right. your safety is like part of, you know, and and like no one member of the team is m more safe than any other, and the team will sustain losses. But the team, like when it works together, and it always does because we're Americans, is gonna is gonna see this war through, and they're gonna they're gonna get their plane put back together no matter what. It's one of the ways that the film provides you a variety of causes, right? It's like, oh, well, if, if this cause up front doesn't do it for you, maybe the death of the pilot will get you invested in joining the war. It does take like 20% of the investment that we have in the, in the victory of the denouement uh, away because we focus the movie on him. Yeah. And then all of a sudden the center of the movie is gone and you're like, I guess it's just like the soldier movie, on. The movie does not care that he's gone. <laughs> right. Like, <laughs> let's get to the end of this movie then. I mean, yeah. Because I think maybe a contemporary movie, if it killed the pilot, it would then go on to kill everybody. Yeah. Or, you know, to leave like one guy standing. To just hang together. We got a new, like, Tex is like, I don't want to fly P 40s anymore. I want to pilot these flying boxcars. You guys have tucked me into it. <laughs> um, yeah. It's, uh, the movie is a very like it's almost like two act structure in a way where like the first half does not really have much excitement in the way of combat. And the second half is really chock a block with it. Like they get in a lot of engagements. Maybe it was the Tora 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 episode we were talking about. Like they, the generals are all shown, you know, letting it wash over them that the war is on. And they're like, well, I guess we'll just have to do it. But like inside, they're probably like, fuck yeah. <laughs> and and it, this movie kind of made me feel that like where you're like pent up by the time they start actually like fighting Japanese airplanes. And then you're like, yeah, you I know, mean, think about being in the military in 1940. Yeah. Or for most of 1941. And you're just, you know, you're pushing a broom around. Yeah. You're, like, you're just you're you're polishing the brass on the colonial holdings of the United States. <laughs> and all of a sudden someone says like, I don't care what your job was before. Here's a gun. Here's an extra stripe. And yeah. oh, by the way, like they're coming over the hill. So yeah, lock and load. <laughs> if you can stop them, there's another stripe in it for you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's pretty intense. And I, and, and I guess we don't see that, that moment portrayed as often in film as we do the later stuff where it's like, okay, We've massed a bunch of guys and we're going into Iwo Jima, yeah. uh, which happened a lot later. And and by that point, we were making guns and bullets and right. we did have a strategy. <laughs> and this was just like, I don't know, man. Like when your gun's out of bullets, pick up a stick. <laughs> they also have a ton of different techniques for showing us where we are in the world in this movie. 
that it kind of seems like they're almost like what if we show like a dot like a dotted line progressing across the map this time right we get the amelia Earhart <laughs> thing where it's like yeah. a little plane but like when they're leaving san francisco they're like these in i've never seen this ever, ever before or since in a movie but like miniature like 30,000 foot view of the city of san francisco that's made like just on it looked like they painted a piece of plywood with the street map and then put a bunch of Christmas lights up through where the streets are. And you could see how big that model yeah. was. It was huge. <laughs> I mean, yeah. But it also didn't look anything other like, uh, but a matte painting yeah. with Christmas lights. Like you guys know this is a black and white film, right? And so like, you can't just paint the water blue and have that be good enough for the ocean. <laughs> <laughs> but it was beautiful. I mean, I, I honestly wondered what happened to that map of San Francisco? Like it's gotta, it's just been like thrown away at the end of the movie, right? Like it would be, how cool would that be if you had like a big loft space and that was on your wall, yeah. just like, you know, Twinkling. 16 by 16 map of San Francisco with Christmas lights in it's it. It's almost something you want to like build. Yeah. You could build it out of a piece of a big piece of canvas. I don't know uh, if this is a thing that you guys would have ever seen, but there's a spot in San Francisco called the Bay model. And it's a hyper-realistic underwater topography map of the San Francisco Bay that they use to, like, model currents and flows to, I guess, like, figure out, like, what they need to dredge for shipping and, like, all these different ecological reasons. Oh, yeah. Adam, you remember when you and I went to see that. (laughs) It's, like, it's something that you go to on, like, a field trip when you're in in elementary school in the Bay Area. But it's, like... It's that. It's like a a huge like hangar size room, and you're like up on catwalks above this perfect model of the San Francisco Bay, and that's, that's great. what I thought of. I uh, made me want to go back. Like, <laughs> I was like, man, I feel like I would appreciate that on a whole new level now that I'm a nerdy adult. <laughs> we need to we need to keep a running tally of friendly fire um, uh, like destinations for yeah. a big world tour when we're the, when we take it. The, the the friendly fire field trip. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it sounds like that facility could hold between 30 and 40 of our audience, so that'd be perfect. That's about our draw. Yeah. (laughs) He doesn't appreciate a good airplane, Major. It ain't that, sir. It's just that I don't like him so big. Tex is briefly uh, a a soldier with a gun in this movie. Like, he goes off and and he's no longer working as a pilot because there just aren't any planes for him. Um, And then he volunteers to get into this crew. I mean, we, I guess we talked about it a bit before, but like, does, do you show up at the next base and go like, yeah, I just kind of like ad hoc decided to become a member of this bomber crew. Like, isn't there paperwork involved in everything in the military? I mean, I guess at this moment, like, no, you could just get away with it. Cause it was like, it was, it was fucking Pearl Harbor, man. Like a lot of shit went down. It's a dog on plane situation. That's an exportable <laughs> idea to a lot of circumstances. Right. And, and a t-shirt. I really loved an airplane that we hardly ever see Um, at the beginning of this movie kind of main fighter plane that we see is not a P-40. It's a P-39 Aero Cobra, which is an airplane that if you ever see it in a World War II context, you see it as a as the kind of one of the principal airplanes of the Soviet Air Force, Hmm. because during the lend lease period, we started shipping them over across the Bering Strait. Wow. And it ended up being the airplane that, uh, you know, kind of comprised the the backbone of the Soviet Air Force. But it was because during the period before the war, 
we didn't have all these hot dog, you know, we hadn't invented the, whatever the F4 and the, and the Thunderbolt and stuff like that stuff came later. And so this nutty little P39, it was the airplane that, that would have been in all these locations. Is that the one where the canopy doesn't go all the way back and the gunner is like pointing? Uh, no, there's mach- not even, th- this is a single seater. Okay. And it's the one that has the little bubble canopy that kind of, it looks like, I mean, it's an unusual shaped little dude, kind of a, an airplane that I'd never seen in a World War II movie as we see it here. Yeah. Like it, we see more of them than we see any other fighter plane. And um, I think we ended up giving to them to the Soviets because we had we were making better airplanes. But they just threw those airplanes at the Nazis. And, you know, it didn't matter if, yeah. if uh, the BF-109s shot them down 30 at a time. They just kept hucking them at them right. in, the, in the classic... Soviet style. John, were you just surprised to see like a tricycle gear fighter in this war? It it just looks bizarre compared to the dozens of other fighters that we ever see in World War II fighter plane films. Right. Maybe that's the most significant aspect of the of the P thirty nine that you never see. Yeah. Is that it's a tricycle gear. Yeah. And everything else was a tail dragger. That and the fact that like the Soviets would send like three pilots into the air at a time and they say, when he gets shot out of his plane, you get in the <laughs> get plane the gun. and keep <laughs> keep flying it. <laughs> tail draggers are harder to fly and and take off and land. It's it's a wonder why that was the choice for so many fighter planes at a moment in time where a lot of inexperienced pilots were were put into those cockpits, right? I don't think harder to fly. I think maybe easier to fly, in fact. In two specific areas, a tricycle gear plane is easier to fly, and that's during takeoff and landing. Like, right. You're unable to see over the nose on a tail dragger, and especially if your airfield is bombed to shit, your obstacle avoidance is going to be hard. I think, Adam, that a tricycle gear is more fragile hmm. um, and so harder to land on a rough airfield because if the if the nose wheel hits a pothole and caves, you go straight in. Whereas if uh, on a on a tail dragger, if you land on the you know on your two main wheels, you can kind of bounce along before you before you drop the tail down. Hmm. I don't know in Alaska in Alaska bush pilot culture they all fly tail draggers right um and tail draggers are the ones that they put on floats like they're kind of the that's the standard of being a rough and tumble pilot and none of them would ever fly a tricycle gear yeah they wouldn't they wouldn't do it it's it's built for for difficult terrain for sure yeah a a tricycle gear is like i don't know they they up in alaska they're kind of like oh you're flying a what are you some kind of businessman I think we are disagreeing. Yeah, I think we are. It's hard to tell anymore on this show. You know? I know. <laughs> We're disagreeing and neither of us are convinced. So I guess maybe we leave it at that. Yeah, I guess it's just Alaska experience makes me feel like, like my dad always flew tricycle planes and I was slightly embarrassed by it. <laughs> Whoa. When I was around- That was the, a white collar plane. Yeah, when I was around the Civil Air Patrol and people were like, oh, your dad has a 182? That's weird. My dad has a 180. How do you feel about that? And I'm like, oh man, it's like it's like it's like showing up in a six cylinder car. I'd be like, my dad has two more. <laughs> and my dad hot rodded his planes like his his he always had like the the big hot rod motor. But the fact that he didn't that that the fact that he had tricycle gear was 
I don't know. I just remember feeling kind of ashamed. I can't wait till this episode's over so I can look up what tricycle gear means. <laughs> it's a plane with a nose gear. That's what it mm. is. Simply. Instead like of a plane kind with of a the, punk rock type of deal. Well, no, like the, the Is the, it through the septum or through <laughs> one of the nostrils? <laughs> I, I've got a little nose gear for you. Baby. <laughs> uh, it goes beautifully with this chin music. <laughs> All right, you know the deal. We can't compare war movies to one another, which is why each one we talk about on Friendly Fire gets its own custom rating system. And because I don't talk very much during these shows, I'm the one who gets to design it. <laughs> A lot of you talk even less when Ben and I are just sitting looking at each other. Yeah. I know. I, I didn't know it was possible for two people not in my room to suck out the oxygen of where I'm at, but <laughs> sure enough, it happened. A lot of little things in little moments in this film that caught my eye that could have been the rating system. One thing that we didn't talk about during the early part of the show was the presence of a mom in this film. Oh, she cries. I did not expect in a propaganda film the crying mother to be a quality of it, but there she is right up front. It's really sad that her presence is where it is up front because uh, it. I think it's intentional it's meant to fill you with the idea that this is a dangerous thing for these kids to be doing and they're so young young enough to have caring mothers Uh, but the rating system is not going to be moms nor is it going to be dogs as much as i love that little terrier tripoli it will Mm -hmm. not be him either Uh, for me it feels like it's the stinger that is going to be the rating system the idea of of hacking your b-17 and inserting another gun into it on the fly is a quality that the film embodies, right? It's hacking real life and it's inserting other reasons to hate the Japanese. That's my paper. Wow. (laughs) It's bizarre and unfortunate that Pearl Harbor was and is enough of a reason to fight on the allied side. And yet, uh, this treachery is unrolled more and more often as the film goes on. The idea of that vegetable truck uh, running through planes on the runway, a vegetable truck blocks Raider's vehicle and fires at him and his lady friend. Uh, There's also that moment, we didn't talk about this, the the death of Chester. He, He volunteers to fly as a gunner. And he ends up bailing out, and not only is he strafed while parachuting, but he's shot while on the ground. And yeah. it is it is the worst of all looks. It it just keeps ringing that bell against the Japanese in a way that is manipulative, like a propaganda film is is supposed to be. It makes me sad that you just know that this film fomented a lot of hate against innocent people yeah unnecessarily even and that's that's too bad it also makes me wonder like how suggestible an american audience was at the time for this like did this really capture the imagination the the idea of this treachery i guess it had to have if if we were putting people in encampments but as a film i thought it really grabbed me and held me for its entire runtime i was really nervous about what was going to happen to this flight crew. My 
understanding of the mission of these B-17s really began and ended from San Francisco to Hickam Field. I didn't know anything about what happened to these guys after, and it was neat to see a version of what did. I thought the film was exciting and interesting and did a really good job of efficiently giving us a bunch of different characters. We make a joke about these films always having a guy from Brooklyn or whatever, but this is a film with eight very different characters with a lot of different motivations. And I wasn't expecting uh, that kind of character building in a film from 1943. Still, I can't love it for, for what it does to the Japanese, even though like, was that the rule at the time? Did a film have to do that? Can we not blame it is what I'm asking. I think it depends on whether you're Ben Harrison or me. Yeah. I mean, I, I think... But haven't we seen 40s movies that didn't... Yes. ...didn't relish in this as much? Yes, but this is so early in the war. Um, and I'm not saying that we forgive it, but I don't think... I don't think a war movie podcast at any time other than now would say... How dare the American right. uh, filmmaking industry in 1942 take such a, a negative line You're on really the You're really projecting an argument on <laughs> Well, but the, the, the problem, I think, is that I don't know and you don't know, we don't know, how much Howard Hawks yeah. had heard this story and, and there wasn't a counter story. Right. Right? I mean, if the American government was promulgating this story of Japanese treachery, where would there be other evidence? Yeah, there's not there's not necessarily a counter narrative to to things in, in this era, especially like it's it's such a monoculture that right. this might just be what everybody knew to be true. Because in nineteen forty four the American public also wasn't getting any information about a Holocaust ongoing. Right? There were rumors about how the Jews were being treated, but but I mean, they're, the people that made this film are also living in a world where information is controlled. Right. Yeah. And so it's an irresistible story to tell at one point. And I don't think it's a I, – I think it absolutely speaks to the degree to which xenophobia was like just a ingredient in American culture. Yeah. Um, but I can't I, – I mean, I have a hard time feeling – I mean, feeling like this movie was a conspiracy – where they where the movie makers knew the truth and were and, and were, were one of, of the a- causes of what happened in the right, aftermath right. like that's hard to shake and it's why I can't I think the show is at its best when we when we really try to judge a film by looking at it in in, in its, its own in its time and not in a modern through a modern lens so I'm I'm balancing those two things in giving it what I think is a pretty fair four and a quarter stinger rating. And I think it's just, it's sort of an action film in a way that I really like. I wasn't expecting it to be as as breathlessly paced as I found it. And uh, I thought it was a quality film. If, if you can get past uh, some of its terrible depictions of the Japanese, I know. I'm really talking out of both sides of my mouth here, but um, yeah, that's where I got. I think anything like this, you have to consider a, as a document of its time and a way to understand that time, you know, through another artist's attempt to describe it. And yeah. 
this is this happens to be a more stridently racist movie and and i think that we've had like an interesting conversation about like why that might be so um yeah i i i think that the action scenes were really amazing and uh you know some some of the best in breed for this era but uh overall the movie did not totally grab me um i think that i would recommend it only with the caveat that it's interesting to see what a movie rushed to release on the one year anniversary of D-Day looked like. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and for like a really like cool and interesting premise, like I would, I would love to see a modern auteur tackle a story like this. So I, I guess I'll come in at a three and a half, um, stingers. You know, the Japanese internment has become one of about 10, uh, flags that we plant in the ground now as evidence of America as a racist country, evidence of America as an unjust place. And you know, my dad lived through that period and a lot of his really good friends were Japanese in Seattle at the time. And he would tell stories and he had a, a, a really kind of powerful story of being at a friend of his, at a, at a Japanese friend's house in Seattle's little Japan, which was after the war torn down and made into a freeway, but it was right there kind of above um, where the Yesler Terrace neighborhood is now. He was there at a friend's house and watched as a man showed up and offered his friend's mom something like $15 for her new refrigerator. And she said, you know, that's a $80 refrigerator and it's brand new. And he said, you know, you guys are getting shipped out and I'll give you $15 for it right now. Or you can get shipped out and I come and get it for free in three days. And my dad's sitting in that living room and just being enraged, you know, at the age of what would he have been 20 at watching. And his friend, you know, was going to enlist, but, but his mom was going to the camps and the rage my dad felt and the rage he felt when he told that story, when he was 70. Yeah has always kind of colored my feeling and 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 I often am the I guess the person on this show that's contextualizing those events but like when we think about Japanese internment now we imagine that all american all white americans were standing in the street with torches or something um and kind of like now in our moment of history now you know there are a lot of racists empowered by the by I mean, rhetoric. They sell tiki torches at Walmart. They, now. they do. They always did, but it was for <laughs> Hawaiian themed parties before. Yeah. But you know, there's a giant proportion of the United States now as, or then as now that, that recognize that that was an injustice. And, and so this movie is really interesting to watch in the, in that context to, to, to try to imagine what it was, what it was to just be like normal American going to the movies and getting this information this fifth column conspiracy because we don't see a portrayal of Japanese Americans. That's particularly racist. We never meet any of them. Right. Right. We don't see a caricature of, of somebody, you know, buck tooth Japanese uh, bad guy shooting from the woods. We never even know who those, we don't see those snipers at all. Uh, we know who they are. Right. And we assume they're that caricature. Right. 
but I do feel I agree. Yeah, with it's you. even hearsay in the movie, isn't it? Yeah, right. It's all hearsay, and it's never validated. We're just so watching weird. the. We're watching our own soldiers being told that story, and it's justifying their actions. Right. It's like, wow, that's a real bummer. Well, yeah, that's right. <laughs> Load up, fellers. You know the. Um, they're telling this story to one another, but we. It's the. I mean, it's not like the movie challenges it. No. But as a as a movie to watch as a historical document, there really aren't that many like this that you can watch and see, see the war in its, in its germination from the American perspective. And I agree with you, Adam, that, that it surprised me what a good adventure movie it was. So yeah, I think I'm going to come in a little above Ben uh, at like 3.8 sawed off improvised tail guns. It's a pretty good movie to watch. And depending on how sensitive your sensibilities are to, to 1942 mentalities, you know, you're going to have a different experience of watching this, but hopefully we've laid out, like we've trigger alerted you enough that, uh, that if you do want to watch this movie, I think, I think it's possible to get a lot out of it. If you fly up behind this movie, it'll surprise you. That's right. There's a stinger waiting for you. Uh, well, did you have a guy, Adam? I sure did. The guy who makes you feel safe throughout the entire film is Robbie, the flight engineer. Because no matter where they end up landing, no matter what bombed out airfield they end up in or the condition of their plane when when they belly land it, as long as Robbie's alive, they've got a chance. It's so weird, like the qualities of his character are such that he's he has authority without ever raising his voice or being a dick about it. He's just always the most knowledgeable guy in every scene. Yeah. And I really loved his character throughout. I loved seeing, like, how is he going to get him out of this jam? Like, what improvised materials are they going to make an engine cowl out of? Like, how is he going to marshal the help to fill up the gas tanks to get him off the ground again? Uh, He was great. I looked for him often throughout the film. I thought he was awesome. And I think he gets that centerpiece scene where he's told about his son's death. I mean, it's something that they telegraph throughout. You can't just have a son that you're excited to see and expect to see him alive in a film like this. But- the crucial moment of that conversation gives me the chills to even think about, which is like, it's not just that he was killed. It's not just that all that's left of him is a wallet and and a pin. It's that he didn't even get into the air. And that is such a brutal way to go if you are in a brotherhood of pilots. You've got to get into the air at least, right? It's, it's for some reason, it's, it's a worse death that way. And I really love that moment. And I really love that moment for that character. So that's why Robbie's my guy. Good guy. My guy is Callahan, the Marine. And, uh, (laughs) that's just, just because of like how little further information he needs when he finds out that, uh, Tripoli was, uh, another Marine's dog. Yeah. It's just like... He's going to be eating like a king or something like that. Like it's To a dog person, that's a promotion and, and that's you for yeah. sure. I aspire to just like move through life like, oh, there's a new like thing I have to deal with. Fine. No problem. You know, like 
<laughs> like what a cool affect that guy has. Aspirational. Yeah. John, did you have a guy? I did, and I've sort of struggled to find her name. And uh, I'm talking about our pilot, uh, his wife. She's talking about Mary Quincannon, uh, uncredited. Uncredited, which seems to me to be crazy. Yeah. Because she shows up in this movie. Oh, no, no, no. Here it is. Anne Doran yep. is uh, Mary Quincannon. She's uncredited in the film, but we see, we, we, we know who she is. Mm-hmm. But she shows up in the film and she's got this scene where she's kind of late to kiss her husband goodbye. And while she's on the screen, she steals the movie for me. Like I felt immediately in love with her <laughs> uh, because she just, she had so much personality she really communicated their relationship really yeah. strongly. Like that she was, um, she was somebody that you could tell was kind of, you know, his equal partner in the relationship. She was funny. She was funny. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was somebody that you really, you knew you wanted to come home yeah. for her. Right. Um, I wanted to come home to her. Like if she was grandma, like she would be like funny grandma who like plays practical jokes and like laughs her ass off at everything. And when you think about it, the fact that she appears in the movie does really foreshadow that he's going to die Yeah, because we, she's the only one that we see at the the start of the film that gives you that like, Oh, right. You know, like there's something waiting for, for this guy, uh, which is a happy life with a kind of a, wife that's got a lot of moxie um we never see her again obviously but in the time that she was on the screen i was like oh <laughs> come on yeah good gal she's a good gal well john uh since you're here we don't have the uh 120 sided dice i, I thought about us. bringing it with me but i also tried to imagine standing at tsa exp- trying to explain why you had that <laughs> explaining this uh, 120 sided <laughs> egg yeah and you don't want to keister it that's a pretty big piece yeah, of uh piece sure of equipment is. oh john i think you could take it on i carried this watch <laughs> uh but i do have a you know i do have a sound effect here which is your uh, little jar of olive skewers from your <laughs> home bar yeah so uh, how are we gonna? I'm just I'm just gonna pick a number. Okay, pick a number, right, here and uh, here's my. You, you can pick a number up to 198. <laughs> Excellent verisimilitude. <laughs> 198. Whoa, that's what it comes up as. <laughs> no kidding. On our 120 sided die. So 198 is a uh, World War II North Africa picture from 1996, directed by Anthony Mangella. It's another long-ass movie, guys. (laughs) It's The English Patient. Oh, The English Patient! Did you say at one point that you were dreading watching this movie? I don't think I've ever seen it. I think my primary association with The English Patient is that the cast of Seinfeld didn't like it. (laughs) So it was was some kind of big Oscar winner, right, Adam? Yeah, it was big. Big time. Looks like it's fairly well-reviewed. I don't remember seeing it ever. John, you never saw it? No, I saw it. I saw it in theaters and I saw it again. I think I've seen it three times. 1996 movie, two hours, 42 minutes, $232 million at the box office. It was a great big success. Nine Academy Awards. Yeah. When I did my study abroad in Dublin, I was a member of the same gym as Ralph Fiennes. And so I would often see him 
like wow. three uh, three running machines down, <laughs> sweating it out. I feel like this was this came out right in a period when I I probably watched it on VHS. I saw it in the theaters, and then it was yeah. something that somebody rented. This is one of those ones that comes on two tapes, right? Right. Yeah. It absolutely is in the category of an epic film, but it has a couple of special effects. One of them that just stuck with me for, for I mean, I'm just remembering it now, and it's still like super powerful. Wow. Well, I can't wait to check it out. Um, we'll see if Seinfeld was right or if John was right. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I'm often on the other side of <laughs> Seinfeld. <laughs> well, that'll be next week on Friendly Fire. So for now, uh, we'll leave it with Rob's. For Adam Pranica and John Roderick, I've been Ben Harrison. To the victor, go the spoiler alerts. Friendly Fire is a Maximum Fun podcast, hosted by Ben Harrison, Adam Pranica, and John Roderick. The show is produced and edited by me, Rob Schulte. Our theme music is War by Edwin Starr, and it's courtesy of Stone Agate Music. And our logo art is by Nick Dittmore. Friendly Fire is a podcast that's made possible by the support of our listeners like you. To make sure that Friendly Fire continues, visit MaximumFun.org slash join and pledge your support. By doing so, you'll gain access to our monthly Pork Chop episodes, as well as all the other MaxFun bonus content. If you want to chat about our podcast on various forms of social media, just search for our discussion groups or use the hashtag FriendlyFire. You can find Ben on Twitter at BenjaminAHR. Adam is found at Cut for Time. John is at John Roderick. And you can find me at Rob K. Schulte. Thanks. To keep our freedom, the Lord knows there's got to be a better way. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.